Let us hear the word of the Lord together. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the... To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. By Silvanus, a faithful brother, I regard him, I have, um, as, as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring to this to you, this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Church, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God indeed. All right. Well, um, I want to make mention before I get into the sermon this morning. You may have noticed this uh, bouquet of flowers you're seeing on top of the piano this morning. They are a gift from the Bradley family, the Curtis family, to mark out one year since our brother Dale's passing last year. If you uh, are newer to our church, uh, Dale Curtis was one of our uh, deacons here, deacon of prayer, um, and he passed away last August, and he was a faithful man, and anyone who knows him, he was a, a faithful patriarch to his family, an example, and he's dearly missed by, by those of us who knew him well, and, and especially the family. So it is there to one, uh, memorialize, but also just want to say pray for the family as they, they remember his life and his impact and his investment in their lives in these days ahead, okay? Um, there's also several things, again, Amanda mentioned earlier, pray for Justin and Allison as they get rest this week. Uh, they uh, you know, obviously just had their young, your, your young lady, uh, uh, Tegan, I think, right? Tegan, Tegan this morning uh, on Friday. And so be in prayer for them, and we'll let you know uh, needs as we go forward as far as meal plans. I'm sure someone's already working on it. If they're not, we'll make sure we get those out here first of the week so those who would want to serve them can serve them well. And, of course, um, Grandpa and Grandma are not here this morning because they, the grandkids, the, their daughters, were actually a little sick this morning under the weather, so they had to stay home and, and watch them. So just be in prayer for the Long family in, in this coming week especially, okay? All right, so this morning we are going to do our level best to finish out the letter to 1 Peter. Now, I want to say something. We're actually not starting Ezekiel next week. We're going to push it back two weeks. Um, and I originally had this next week marked out to finish out the letter, but we're running a little bit ahead, which is good. Um, but we're going to take two weeks because September 11th is when we're going to kind of start that, um, that time. But as we try to finish up our time here in 1 Peter, I cannot um, praise and thank God for being a part of a church that um, that just commits its way to this, right? This pattern of just un unpacking and slowly dripping the word of God into our heart through, through expository preaching week in and week out. And every time we end a book at Grace Church, at least from my vantage point, um, it is, it's a special feeling that wells up inside of me because you, you realize, man, that's one more. That's one more piece of the puzzle for God's people, right? It's one more piece for us to continue to wonder and understand and enrich in our lives and who the, the great God of the universe, the one true living God is, and who he is, who he is and what he is doing and what he calls us to be as his people. And so to the best of ability, myself and the elders have tried to unpack this as faithfully as we know how over these last, uh, I guess, 18 weeks. This is 18. This is the 18th sermon in this series in five chapters. And um, 
You know, I'm, I'm just praising God for that right now. I've had that feeling ever since Friday as I was trying to wrap up some of the sermon prep that, you know, we're in our seventh year and, and come, come January 6th, we'll be starting our eighth year as a church. And, and we've seen God do so many faithful things in that, you know, seven years and starting our eighth year at that time. And we've preached through, just get this, okay? Um, and this is not a bragging thing. I hope that's not what it comes off of. But just something I want to give God thanks for is that we've preached through 13 books, full books of the Bible in, in, our, in our seven years. You count the upcoming uh, series in Ezekiel, we have preached through six Old Testament books and seven New Testament books in that time period, not counting other series that we've done here and there um, throughout our time together. And you know, Lord willing, that's just the beginning. I mean, um, I would love to say that we'll hopefully be able to preach or touch on every one of the books of the Bible by the time I'm finished my tenure here, if the Lord wills. And so I do believe, though, that in God's kindness, there's going to be a smooth transition in our time as we move out of 1 Peter into our study into Ezekiel for a, for a number of reasons. Um, and, and mainly is this, that God's people both in Ezekiel's day and in Peter's day, and dare I say even in our day, um, we live as those alien exiles. That's why we have the graphics we do up here. We, we live at that. And so there's something that we have in common with all of God's people through all the ages. We're, we're aliens and we are Exiles. Now, you may be wondering, what does that mean, Pastor? Well, let me just, maybe we going back and recalling a couple of notes from our first couple of sermons in 1 Peter will be helpful to us. If you were here and you've been tracking with this series for us for this time, you remember Peter's been writing to a church in Asia Minor and what we would call modern day Turkey, and all is not well. And he is seeking to encourage them through his words. And because here's a church that's living there trying to be faithful to being witnesses to the good news of the gospel, and they're facing increasing resistance, they're facing increasing suffering for just being God's people. Like this is not, the reason they are suffering is because they are God's people. It's not because it's just random other circumstances, but, but, but the Bible, at least what Peter seems to be implying here is that this is because you're God's people and therefore he wants to, God's people who suffer because they're God's people to know how to live as God's people when they suffer. See how that works? All right, so that's, that's how it is. And so when we think about this principle that we've been trying to unpack through our time in Peter, we have to remember that the, the, the principle that runs under 1 Peter is simply this. God's people everywhere in all times and all places are alien exiles between the two advents of Christ. Like we live now in that moment, and it's, it's an uncomfortable moment. It always will be an uncomfortable moment because we're not exactly where we're supposed to be, are we? Aliens. Now, aliens... Is to, imply, is, to in, 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 um, is to imply that we're a different race of people. There's much to be said about racism, and racism is a great and grievous evil. But when we talk about ethnic centrism in the world, we're, we're dealing with an issue of how people of different ethnicities are mistreated because of those issues. But there are two races of people in the world. There are the fallen, and there are the redeemed. Those are the only two races that exist in the world. And so we have the alien people of God who are not quite like the rest of the people in the world because we are the redeemed people of God, not defined by skin color, not, by, not defined by our ethnicity or cultural demarcation or political positioning or whatever, but we're defined by what? Our election. First Peter, Peter said it in the very first verse of the book. You, he's writing to the elect exiles of the dispersion. Super fundamental for us, Right. And what does he mean by exiles? Well, exiles are simply this. We're not a people in our home. We're not where we belong. We, 
We're unlike Israel in the Old Testament who, who looked back to this home in Israel, this home of the this, this sovereign city of Jerusalem. They, we're not like that because Peter understands and what Christians understand today is that those earthly homes were, were mere types and shadows of the true and better home, right? The home that we have that one day will be given to us when Jesus returns. It's a, it's a new and better Jerusalem. It's a new and better city. It's a new and better Eden, perhaps, you want to put it that way. Hebrews 11 says that Abraham looked for that city whose maker and architect was God. It was never about those places, those earthly homes. It was always about the, 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 the architecture of the, the city of God that God was leading us to. And so Peter's applying all this wonderful theological truth, right? This wonderful gospel truth that you are a gospel people and you don't, you're, you're not in your home yet and you're longing for something much, much better. And so as it stands then, since Christ's ascension, at least in our particular uh, new covenant dispensation, if you want to use that word, okay? God's elect people live in a land that is not their home until Jesus brings us to our true home, Upon his second, in his, his second return, his return. Ever since the fallout in the garden, it's not like this is about all that uh, of a secret, bigger secret. <laughs> if you read the Bible correctly, this is not a secret, right? God's covenant people have had to learn what it means to live as God's people in a world that's not their home. This is, this is not a new thing. It's ratified in, in a new and better way in Jesus, but it's not a new thing. It's been there since the beginning. We've noticed several times that I like to use the... the uh, I like to use Graham Goldsworthy and Vaughn Roberts' illustration of this, that we are God's people in God's place, living under God's rule and blessing. And presently, we are God's people, meaning by redemption, by election. We're not in the, our place yet, because our, except for the fact that we're in Christ, who is our true temple, until he reveals himself. And we live under his rule and blessing by word and spirit. So in essence, what Peter is going to remind the church this entire letter if you want to kind of put it all together, is this. Today, we are a people, a new covenant people, be reminded of those instructions by this apostle Peter that we're God's people, longing for God's true place for his people, living under his rule and blessing through this word and spirit until that time comes. So if you wanted to summarize the sermon this morning, you would be something like this. It's God's people born to a living hope and living holy lives, we are, to, we are living also as rejected stones like our Savior Jesus was in a world that is not our home until Jesus returns. If you want to sum up Peter, that's pretty much what you would get. Because of this then, as we then wrap up the letter, here's what Peter would like to do in his final words to us. Strive for humility. Be sober-minded. Have a watchful life in all the days Knowing that God, all your days, knowing that God will finally and fully establish his people when his glory is revealed. So Peter's like, look, I get it. This is what God's people have always had to deal with. Until Jesus returns, it's always going to be like this. But there is a pattern to the Christian life of humility and sober-mindedness and watchfulness for us. And this is what he wants to remind his people of. And that's what we're going to do. We're going to follow that pattern this morning. Three main points this morning that we will talk about. Humbling ourselves, number one, under God's mighty hand. We're going to take it straight from the text. Watching out for the, our ultimate adversary, the devil. And resting in the promise of future restoration. Then we'll conclude it with some instructions he gives there at the end of the letter. Okay? So let's talk about humbling ourselves under the mighty hand of God. 
when Peter talks about humbling ourselves under the mighty hand of God. Let's look at the text itself. Because Look, I'm not saying anything new here. This is not my words. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him, because he, he cares for you, friend. He cares for you. Humble yourself. Now, when we speak of humility, like, that's the one thing that everyone says, don't pray for humility, because that's like, <laughs> right? Because if you pray for humility, God's, God will do whatever it takes to make sure that we are humbled, right? But that humility is something that God's people are to aspire for. All of mankind is supposed to aspire for. But in order to understand humility, we also got to understand what the Bible envisions when it comes to pride. It's hard to talk about humility if we don't understand the, the seriousness of our pride. And so God confronts regularly throughout the scriptures to pride in two different ways. He, he confronts those who have set themselves up against God and his ways, those who accuse God's people of doing wrong when, in fact, they are doing right. Does this sound at all familiar to our context today? All right. God confronts those who speak maliciously against his people. And so the Bible regularly speaks this. And, he, and again, as we get into Ezekiel, you'll realize even though God's people are dealing with the judgment of God in some ways, God's also going to judge the nations who he uses as his own instrument he will judge them as well because they have mocked his people and they have mistreated his people. But the scriptures don't just speak to the people out there, friends. They speak to the people in here. And when he deals with our humility, the scriptures tell us and confront God's people regularly throughout the pages of the Bible. Those people who seek their personal interest above others. Those people who, get, who seek their own gain and their own autonomy from the rule of God in various places of their lives. Like, I think all of us, if we're honest and really want to set ourselves in you know, clear view here, we, we understand this is, this is regular with us. It is a regular struggle to consider our own personal gain, our own personal struggles, our interests, and our autonomy. Why? Because we may not think we're doing it in a more innocent way, but we do it. And God regularly confronts us and corrects his people for this. Now, the difference is that there's condemnation for those who are outside of Christ, and there is grace and mercy for those who are in Christ, and he humbly drives us and gently drives us back to dependence upon him. So he says, humble yourselves, and he says specifically, under the mighty hand of God, so at the proper time he may exalt you. When God says his mighty hand truly the truly humble recognize and they will submit to the sovereign and powerful hand of God who orchestrates the events of their lives. Like the mark of a humble Christian is those who, even with all their fear and anxiety and struggle inside their own heart, will, will, will every day run back to, okay, God, you are the one who is orchestrating every detail of my life. Indeed, and not just my life, but all of life. And, and that's, that is what people will be judged for. Not recognizing God's sovereign rule. And of all people on earth who should understand God's, people, God's rule, it has to be God's people, right? God's rule. Because if God's people understand this, then we stand as a testimony to the world who is rejecting God's sovereign rule. And so it's so important that God's people, in the midst of the places like Peter, the church in Asia Minor, and in the church today... It's ex extremely important for us to continue to humble ourselves in the mighty hand of God. Why? Because we stand as a testimony. So God's sovereign activity is not simply this working into response to our decisions, as if some God's kind of, God's some kind of like out there kind of always responding to every new data point that comes out. We kind of treat God like that sometimes. 
Like, God's just out there, and he's just kind of running around frantically like, okay, whoops, um, all right, Tom made a bad decision there. i got to try to do something differently. That's not the sovereignty of God. That makes God like, like, like a, you know, he's, there's a, he's just there to be a, like a waiter to us. That's not what we're talking about here. But it's working on the, but this is a God's sovereignty is that precise timeliness of our needs for one purpose, to for his own glory, and namely what it says here in the text, that you may be exalted. Now, that seems odd. God wants to exalt us. Now, we all know, been, hopefully been taught well about this, that the prosperity pushers read this very differently than we do. And they think that God exists so that you and I get our own gain and get our own experience of life. And that's not what we're talking about here. No, to being exalted for our, for our faithfulness has in mind that our lives glorify God and reveal the misery of those who seek lesser glories. When we are exalted, we are standing as an indictment to the world who is seeking lesser glory. God doesn't want the world to seek lesser glory, and he certainly doesn't want his people to seek lesser glory. You might say an example of this is 1 Corinthians 1, 25-31. You guys are familiar with the passage. Paul's talking about the foolishness of our message, right? So verse 25, let me, let me hunt it down here real quick. For consider your calling, brothers. Verse 26, let's do this. I'm sorry, verse 25. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to the world's standards, but many... Not many of you were powerful, not many of you were noble of birth, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And so when we, when we think about Peter's message here to, to, his, to the church, Peter is very much reminding the church that we are a people who live, who are being exalted so that our purpose in being exalted shows forth their own, like the, the, the foolishness of the world. Do you understand that like your suffering and my suffering, though it may be painful from time to time, is to show the world its foolishness? I don't, know that we ever, I don't know that we think about it that way, but that's, that is why God exalts his people. Because God will not share his glory with another. And when the world seeks after lesser glories, he raises his people up in their suffering to show the world how foolish they are. Friends, your weakness is not a problem for God. In fact, it's exactly the instrument God wants to use to show the world how silly we actually are. So because of this, then we move on through the passage. Cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. So you see the connection here. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, right? So that at the proper time he may exalt you. And, and how you do that? By casting your anxieties on him because he cares 
for you. Peter is reminding them that this world is indeed a fearful place. And in case you didn't know that, let me just share with you, this world is a fearful place. Don't be shocked when you leave tomorrow, when you see the next headline, when you see the next action by some political leader, and you go in your heart, your heart starts thumping, and gets a little ice cold there, and you go, where is this world going? Like, don't be surprised by that. This is the nature of the world we live in that is in rebellion to God. And this world will throw any manner of fearful things at us. They want to embed their own fear into the hearts of the people who should be of all fearless because they know the one true living God. We've already noted the church in Asia Minor faced repeated resistance and persecution, but you also remember that here's Peter's words to them are something probably ringing in his ears because Jesus reminded his disciples of this very truth as well. And you'll remember that. You know what he said to them in the midst of that? That... He reminded him of this, that it reverberates through his mind. Don't worry when these things happen, when you see this, when this comes through mind, when you see the reality of the fearful world you live in. Don't worry about what you will say or do, for the Holy Spirit will teach you. So Peter's just transferring that same truth that Jesus taught him to these people. And he's reminding them that they are under God's mighty hand and he is able to lead them through the sticky and bumpy roads of life. Friends, God cares for us. His care for us comes from his sovereign precision. And that's where our anxieties are laid to rest. God's sovereign precision. This means that the anxieties that we carry with us are meant to be cast upon him. It doesn't mean that you won't have fear. Like That's not true either. Like Christians, we fear. We have anxieties. You will struggle with these things. The question is what you do with them when they are laid upon you. No, see, no one thing or no one person or being outside of God can carry our anxieties. Only God can do that. Only God will work his plan out perfectly in the face of real dangers, real toils, and real snares. So when you think about this and we want to apply this to our lives, consider what brings you the most grief in your life. Like, ask the question. What is it that brings you the most grief in your life, the most anxiety right now or most recently in your life? And ask yourself, what, are the, what, what, are, what is it that comes in your mind? What words do you tell yourself? What self-talk, if you want to use that word, runs through your mind regarding these issues? Probably the self-talk is something like you're looking for the thing that is causing the most anxiety to be the God that saves you. Have you ever thought about that? that? Sometimes our anxieties are driven by the fact that we are expecting the thing that's given us the most anxiety in life to be the very thing to be our Savior. Your, your problems in your relationships? Look, marriage is a wonderful and beautiful thing, but your spouse is not your savior. Your jobs? Your job is not your savior. Your money, your retirement, it's not your savior. And so what runs up under these anxieties is this, this, this subtle way in which these things that brawl, give us anxiety are actually the things we want to worship. Friends, don't worship them. Only God can bring you the peace you need in those moments of life, in those fears that you face. The world is a fearful place, and it can lead us to dread and despair in so many different ways. I mean, just looking at our modern moment, many of us are experiencing this fear in the face of this moral revolution, at least apparently this moral revolution that is redefining virtually everything that we know, the nature of humanity, the nature of, of, of male and female, uh, the nature of sex, the nature of 
economics, I mean everything. Friends, it can cause us, if we're just taking a moment to be honest, does it cause you to feel a little lonely and isolated? I would imagine if you're a Christian and you hold to different values, it probably does. Does it cause you to feel powerless? Like, I don't, what am I supposed to do with all this? Does it cause you to feel directionlessness, right? Some kind of directionlessness there? Does it cause you to feel sad? Friends, I think when we look back at Peter's words to the church and things we might apply to ourselves, is that may I suggest that much of our fears, remember the fact that we, we're just looking to too many other things to mend our fears except for God. Is the God of the Bible the, the one you look to to mend your fears? Peter's last words as he's concluding this, this is this at least one point he wants them to remember. God can only be the one who mends our fears. And humility in the Christian life and the daily practice of it is learning to trust God and submit to his ways. And we like to use this term around here more regularly around here is the ordinary and trust the ordinary means of grace that God has given us in the, in the church and in the, call, call the Lord's Day worship and, and, and the fellowship of the believing, right? These ordinary means of grace as we travail through life. Why? Because we're, we're going to have these fears. We're going to have these stumbles. We're going to get these bumps and the bruises along the way. But we can stay true and steady along the way if we'll just allow God to, 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 to experience our grace of God through, through the ways in which God himself has given us these means of grace. Too many Christians neglect these things. And friends, we do them to our own peril. He says, then, it's next, then, as we are humble and submit ourselves to the mighty hand of God, to be watchful and sober-minded. Right? Be sober-minded and be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Do you know, and I think sometimes we might be a little bit embarrassed by this, Maybe not. I don't know. Maybe it's just me projecting onto that. But the devil works tirelessly to keep you from, keep you from taking hold of your God. Now, he's not sovereign. He's not omnipotent. He's not omnipresent like God is. But he works tirelessly in these ways and the workers of the evil. I don't think many Christians take these kinds of things seriously today. Yet people say, well, you know, the devil's not under every rock. Well, Maybe. He is working diligently. Doesn't mean we can blame all of our sin on him, but he does definitely wants to create chaos in our lives, does he not? And that's what Peter's saying here. You need to be sober-minded and watchful because he's prowling around like a lion seeking someone to devour. I mean, the devil works in subtle and seductive ways in our lives. Ways and sometimes we don't even see. We don't even want to recognize. Like a lion, you're... If you ever watched like documentaries, like lions are quiet, they're stealth. They can crawl up on their prey, and their prey don't even know they're there. And they catch them in off guard, and they devour them before they even know what happens. Lions stalk. They're silent killers, you might say. And we need to be like the gazelle. That's alert to the lions. Christian needs to be alert to the, to the devil's poise. And how will we do this? By being sober-minded. Be sober-minded is to be clear in our thinking, honest in our self-assessments, and discerning and understanding our God's ways and his revelation to us through the scriptures. 
Translated in some passages, if you're not using ESV, you might say self-controlled. It's not, this, it's not anything different there. To be self-controlled knows that there's um, self-controlled knows that there's so many ways that we can fall into seductive allures of the world, and we're seeking to, to gird ourselves up and be prepared for these things. We must live with a keen eye to the affairs of our lives and discern how the truth of the gospel and of God's word reshapes our lives in light of those things. God, Peter says, be careful, be sober-minded, be watchful, be alert. Are you alert, Christian? Are you alert, brother and sister, this morning? There's no place for sleeping on the job in the Christian life. I know we all want a good nap, right? Some of you want a good nap this afternoon somehow or the other. Maybe you didn't get one yesterday. We all like that, but there's no sleeping on the, on the job as a Christian, right? There's just, like, we, like the Christianity is not a passive spiritual exercise where you just show up on Sunday, smile a little bit, make everybody happy, and then just disappear spiritually throughout the rest of the week. It's not who we are. It requires alertness to the attacks that are being thrust upon us. Be watchful. Be sober-minded. Resist him. To resist is what? To fight. To fight. Fight for your life. Fight for your spiritual health. Fight for your family. Fight for the assaults that are leveled against you and your family each and every day. I think it's appropriate how timely it is that we're remembering our brother Dell because this was a man who fought through prayer specifically, but in other ways, fought for his family every day of his life. He didn't want, at least on his watch, to be found sleeping. You remember that, right? Remember, remember when Jesus said to his disciples, like, you know, he goes up on the mountain, he's, he's, in that, in that he's out there, and, he, and he's, he's crying out to the Lord, and, and every time he shows back up, here's Peter, and they're all sleeping. Friends, we've got to learn to fight. We have the Spirit in us. Fight. How do we fight? First in our faith. That's what it says. Fight to your faith. Resist him with your faith. Resist him in your trust in the person and work of Jesus. Not your own abilities, not your own strength, but resist him in the person and work of Jesus, what he and he alone has accomplished for you. When we use, and you hear the word thrown around a lot, maybe not quite as much as it used to be, but when we hear the word a lot of times we think of gospel-centered, this is what we mean. That our entire hope is in Christ and his person, his work on on our behalf. We resist him through the word. The truth of God's word. This is all what Peter is encouraging this church, and he does it from the very beginning of the letter. Look at 1 Peter 1, 4 through 5. I'll just pick up in 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power in heaven for you, I'm sorry, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Our faith in who Christ is and what he has accomplished, Peter says, is essential to fighting and living in the midst of a world that will cause us much suffering. Because if you don't lead out with your faith, you're forgetting that you, friend, brother, sister, you are here in this room and you have confessed Christ. Do you know you are being guarded? 
You are being guarded by God's power until Jesus is revealed again. Oh, how often we forget that. You are being guarded until Jesus returns. Verse 13, then, because of this, prepare your minds for action. So it's not just we live passively to this reality of being guarded by God's power, but that we actually live actively in God's power by being prepared. And Peter's saying, all that stuff I said there in the first 13 verses of the, chap- of the letter, guess what? It's still the same here at the end. Resist him with your faith, knowing, he says, the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. We've noted this a couple of times in this study, but it's certainly worth repeating. Suffering is not a strange thing. It's a shame when Christians feel like suffering is a strange thing. But it is not a strange thing. Suffering is a normative experience for God's people as alien exiles in this world, which is not our our forever home. Now, of course, this doesn't mean that all our suffering will have uh, uh, qualitatively the same, will experience suffering in the same qualitative, qualitative state. Some will experience suffering in in much more grievous ways. And it it happens in different ways. But all Christians should understand the reality of suffering in our life and not be surprised by it. See, the church in Asia Asia Minor was facing difficulty after difficulty, but the tendency of many of them and many of us, if we say when we face suffering, is to write a narrative in our minds that our experience is different from everybody else's. They won't understand. They don't understand my suffering. I can't tell you how many times I've heard that. I can't tell you how many times I've said that. Okay? Like, they don't understand. They can't, they can't possibly understand that. But our suffering isn't unique. It may be qualitatively different, but it's not unique. They are all ploys of the devil to derail your faith. The Christian needs their faith and in this perfect Christ who lived and died and rose to give us eternity. The Christian needs to know that his, this faith carries them through life with all, as I said earlier, dangerous toils and storms. So we've got to be humble. We need to be sober-minded and watchful. And I think... The way I'm going to care to say it, we need to be restful. Restful in the promises of future restoration. Look at verse 10. And after you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. After you have suffered a little while, Christian, your suffering is temporary. It may not feel like it's temporary in the moment, but it is temporary. Suffering is not, will not last forever. The glory of Christ is eternal. And those whom Christ has cast, whoever God has cast his love on and has been redeemed and called to in Christ, they will live in a glory forever and ever, and that, that suffering will end. Don't you, don't you dare, dare forget that. The God of all grace will restore. To restore is to bring your suffering to an end. 
the God of all grace will confirm. You may look like a fool to the world, but your confidence in Christ will be confirmed in the end. The God of all grace will strengthen. He will strengthen. Your strength will be renewed, even though you face weaknesses virtually at every turn in your life. He will establish you. His grace will establish you. That, my friends, is the ultimate end. That's what Jesus is doing. It has done. He's establishing a people, a place, under his rule and blessing. And that day you will be established in the new heavens and new earth, the new Eden, the new Jerusalem. It's all types and shadows of the ultimate home that you and I are longing for. And so because of this, God is due supreme dominion in our life. To him be the dominion forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. Tell me who else can give you that. Tell me what other fleeting fear you have right now who can give you that kind of assurance. You don't, you can't. So then we kind of wrap up and we look at Paul's last words here as he's wrapping up. Look at, just, look at how much he just pastors them. And they don't even, maybe don't even recognize it. It looks like facts, but, it's, but, it's, but there's something deeply rooted in this. By Sylvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. By Sylvanus, I trust him and stand firm in it. And you know what? That, that lady that goes nameless here, who's in Babylon, she sends you love. She sends you greetings. Mark, my son, does as well. You see what he's doing here? He's telling them you're not alone. You're not alone. This moment's temporary right here, and it may feel like eternity, but it's temporary, and you're not experiencing it alone. You're not alone because there's many other people working faithfully for the glory of God and for our good, and we may not be aware of it. Paul had the support of all these protégés throughout the scriptures, right? He he talked about here, Savannah and, and Mark, but don't forget Timothy and Titus and all these other wonderful men that that were there in his life, the good doctor who wrote Luke and Acts. These were men who were faithful companions to him in his, tra- in, his, in, his, in his trials and in his travels. Church, we're not alone. We're not alone even if we're in Babylon. The sister from Babylon greets you. Babylon represents something far greater than one city. It represents all that it stands against God. And friends, the whole world stands against God. And so Babylon is no threat to God. And, and so, don't get offended by this, but the American experiment is not the end. It's very much part of Babylon as well. It doesn't mean we can't fight for it. It doesn't mean that we can't fight for proper values in it. We can't because we are God's people and we speak truth into it. And we want God's people to know and we want the world to know what it means to live under God's law. Yes and amen to all of that. We don't retreat, but we press forward into Babylon. But friends, we are indeed in Babylon. And 
we live in Babylon. We will, we will live in Babylon until Jesus returns. See, Babylon could very easily be any major city in the world today. Any major empire in the world today. We're not alone because the church stands ready to support all true churches who are needed, where needed until Jesus comes. See, this is the wonderful thing about being part of the church is like, and, and, and look, I'm a Baptist, I'm a Congregationalist, um, but I, but, and, and am convictionally so, and I work really, really hard among my Baptist brethren around the area to connect us. That local, the local entity and the local relationships are so important because we work and we stand and we gird one another and we walk together and we care for one another. I've, I've mentioned this to you in the past. It's very important that the church does this. But I'll be honest with you, Baptists got a long way to go when it comes to really being a church that's better connected together. I've said this personally, there are times when I'm like, I, I have prayed many times to become a Presbyterian because I love the way that they are connected together. They do it well. You can disagree if you want to on that. We can, have a, we can have a little meeting or something if you want to have that meeting, but that's okay. Because the church should be connected in a meaningful way. We should guard one. We should protect one another. Sometimes we don't do that way. And so I'm speaking from my own Southern Baptist experience, which, I, by the way, I believe is changing in some smaller parts of that. We're not alone. Just like Paul's trying to remind them they're not alone. We're not alone. Churches always should be working to protect the peace and purity of the church. And I will do that with any person who walks in this room. I got, uh, I got brothers that will meet with me for breakfast here in this building in two weeks, I think. There will be ACNA guys. There will be Presbyterian guys. There will be a lot of Baptist guys. There will be other guys in that room. And we'll be sitting here enjoying meal and prayer and encouragement of one another. And these are all people who love Jesus. They love his word. And we might be in different entities or connection points when it comes to the church, but we are not forgetting that we're all here in Smyrna. We all have work to do, and we would do well to connect well to the best way we can there. Friends, as we finish this letter, I just want to say one final word, and then we're done. God's people are to remember the same principles that Peter is saying here. Until Jesus returns, remain humble, be sober-minded, be watchful, and rest. And I mean really rest in your future restoration that is coming in Jesus. Amen? Let's prepare ourselves for God's for the Lord's table this morning. Jesus, thank you for our time together this morning. May you be glorified in our time together. May, you be, uh, may we be fully encouraged by what we've heard here today. And as we prepare for Ezekiel here in a couple weeks, Jesus, would you be glorified in our time um, and our preparation and our mindset for that, knowing that we are not that different from the people that Ezekiel was speaking to back then. So Jesus, help us now as we leave and we take this table. I'm sorry, we enjoy this table together as a family of God, but also at the same time, Lord, we enjoy this table um, knowing that when we leave here, we're not alone. We are and not We love you. It's in Jesus' name. Amen.